0: Welcome to Top in Tech, a Global Council podcast. My name's Conan Darcy. I'm a Senior Practice Director and the regular host of this podcast. And this week, we're going to talk about AI policy, and this is long overdue. The buzz in the tech sector for months has been around generative AI since the launch of ChatGPT. And into this debate, the UK has published its long-awaited AI white paper. So I'm delighted that Theresa Dumption from our London office is here to talk me through it and to explain to you what's behind what the UK government is trying to achieve and how does it fit in more broadly with other attempts internationally to regulate or indeed not regulate AI. Welcome, Theresa. Can we kick off just initially with a little bit of an overview of what exactly is it that the government published last week? What's in their AI white paper?
1: Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me, Conan. There are really three points I would like to make. The first will relate to the principles on which the AI white paper is based. Secondly, there are some thing points about sectoral versus horizontal regulation. And lastly, the pro-innovation approach that the government is taking. So let's start with the five principles. These will be quite familiar to people that deal with AI regulation. Well, because they have been adopted by the OECD in May 2019 already but let's look at them more concretely so the first one is safety security and robustness that kind of makes sense we want ai to be for example cybersecure. secure we want it to use high quality data for its training we want it to we want to know where the risks are and we want to see them carefully managed so secondly there is a point about explainability and transparency So organizations should make sure they know when and how algorithms are used and they should be able to explain a system's decision-making process. Now, the second point is very difficult actually to achieve because a lot of times it's actually not quite obvious why a certain decision comes about from an algorithmic process. Um, So regulators will be working with their sectors to determine which data is being used, what is the nature and purpose of AI, and companies should get ready to make all of that a bit more transparent and possibly also available to the public. And the third point is about fairness. Fairness is a big word, but it basically means that we want AI to comply with existing UK regulations, such as the Equality Act 2010. And GDPR. So we don't want AI to discriminate against individuals or to create unfair outcomes for people. For example, this is important in recruitment processes and the ICO has already done work on this in the past. Fourth, regulators will work with their sectors to establish accountability and governance. So there should be greater oversight over AI and there should be accountability for the outcomes so that basically means that there should be more ownership of what AI algorithms actually cause in, in when they're applied in real life. And lastly, and that kind of relates to that, is contestability and redress. We want to have a legal route to dispute harmful outcomes. For example, let's stick with the recruitment example. If you think there has been a harmful outcome, for example, a bias towards a certain group of society that is discriminated against then there should be a route to redress, a legal route. Okay, let's move on from the um, principles and let's uh, move towards how this is actually being implemented. So the UK government is taking a sectoral approach. That means that uh, DCIT will mandate regulators to develop their own guidance on how companies will comply with these principles. And this guidance will be published, will be publicly accessible and will be worked on in collaboration with the industry and will be in the implementation of that will be monitored over time. We'll probably, this is not the end of AI regulation and, and policy, but there will be monitoring of all this and when parliamentary time allows. And if there is a need of this, we will need to watch the space because the government um, says it might introduce legislation if that's necessary, if these five principles are not adhered to in an in industry. And lastly, let's touch on pro-innovation, which is a key phrase for most of the government's digital policies. It doesn't want to restrict um, industry too much in actually trying to create innovative products. So all of the things that I've talked about till now are actually not mandatory. This is just a first approach and there will be flexibility in implementing this. There will be sectoral flexibility in finding an approach that fits to their certain Requirements and there should be no compliance barriers at this point in time when innovation is still happening at a rapid speed.
0: Thanks very much for that summary, uh, Teresa. Those principles sound pretty uncontroversial. You say they're agreed at the OECD, so at an international level. So they all make sense, they're all clear. And I think everyone listening down the line would probably nod along thinking those are the sorts of things that we need to focus on. But it does sound a little bit like there's the crunch at the end, that the focus on being pro-innovation and the focus on a sectoral rather than a, a, a legal approach based in primary legislation doesn't sound like the most interventionist or perhaps the most certain way of upholding those principles. I'm sure we'll come on to discuss that in a little bit more detail as we go into the discussion. But with that comment in mind, can you just set out for us, how does this compare to other jurisdictions? We're often talking about the EU or we're talking about the US. How does the UK framework compare and contrast with international peers?
1: Yeah, so first of all, you're absolutely right. These principles are used all around the globe. So the UK, EU, US and countries like Japan and Korea all largely centre their policies around the OECD principles. If we look at that the UK has proposed a light-touch regulatory approach that is sectoral, Um, there is where we see the main difference to regulations such as the EU-AI Act, which is, as you describe, a bit more heavy-handed. So in that case, the EU is trying to actually draft solid regulation and try to base horizontal requirements for these five principles to be fulfilled and also wishes to introduce central authorities that monitor this. And what it also does is it takes more of a risk based approach. What the UK approach does, it tries to regulate outcomes. So if something goes horribly wrong, we look at the outcome and say, OK, this is something we want to regulate. If we look at the EU's approach, it wants to look at the use cases. So if we have a use case like biometric monitoring, that is an unacceptable use case under the current draft of the UAI Act. And would therefore be prohibited. The risk bases of the UII Act are moderate risk, medium risk, high risk, and unacceptable risk. So, also counting to unacceptable risk are, for example, social scoring systems, and the only exception to that, and biometric identification is national security. That is something that's right now not being accomplished through the IA white paper because. It not being legislation means it can't really prohibit these use cases, and that has already caused a little bit of criticism on the light touch approach that it takes, given that there are some really quite harmful use cases that cause concern, for example, in autonomous weapon systems, on which there is right now an inquiry going in the lords. If we move on to compare this kind of more heavy-handed EU approach and the light touch approach in the UK... If we then at the U.S., that's even more light touch. The U.S. has published guidance through the NIST framework, but that's just standards that the industry can fulfill. So while we would, um, would think that industry would fulfill these as their industry standards and might um, create a competitive advantage over time, there right now is not um, and maybe is even blocked through um, There, there is no bipartisan agreement on this. Um, there is currently no regulation um, in 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 the pipeline in the U.S. So you could say that the, EU, the EU's approach and actually working on legislation is more mature and the U.K. kind of covers the middle ground in having a white paper and a refined approach. And in the U.S., it's right in the early stages.
0: Okay, that's clear. I think for those on the line who are avid followers of what the U.K. is doing in tech policy, after it left the EU, after it had its Brexit. This is quite an interesting case study because we've talked on this podcast many times before about the online safety bill, which actually in many ways the UK, it could be argued that the UK's approach is actually more regulatory, has a higher regulatory burden and threshold than the EU's equivalent, the Digital Services Act. We have the Digital Markets Unit, which replicates the Digital Markets Act in the EU. So in many ways we're going... In, in similar directions as the EU, despite the fact that we left the European Union a few years ago. But This seems to me a very clear example of where the UK is leveraging its regulatory autonomy and taking quite a distinct path. And although, as you say, it's somewhere between the EU and the US, it is a little bit almost closer to the US model than the EU model. And is a clear demonstration, I believe, of divergence that the UK government is actively pursuing. Putting to to, to one side, the international comparisons, the regulatory autonomy post-Brexit and these sort of wider issues. Let's go into a little bit more depth now, Teresa, about for those people who are on the line from AI startups or from larger businesses that are deploying AI within their business. and If they're trying to think through what does this mean, if it's a regulatory approach, but it's a regulatory approach that isn't underpinned by law, what does that actually mean for businesses? And I suppose on the flip side, if you're looking at it from the regulator's perspective, how can they enforce these rules without having legal power? So I guess my question is, what changes?
1: Yeah, so actually, in the immediate term, not a lot. I think this speaks to a couple of conversations I had over the weekend with people leading smaller AI startups or working the head of as head of research in AI who actually didn't know about the AI white paper having come out and when I told them about them about it they thought it was quite interesting but concluded okay, so can I go on with my regular work now because it doesn't seem to be like I have a requirement to do anything else that I'm currently doing, which is having a largely ethics based approach to AI but if I was if I could advise companies that are now thinking about this, I would be I would say take stock of what you're currently doing in terms of AI ethics. Most companies will already have a framework in place. Look at your GDPR compliance that you probably already have in place and then look at the five principles and see how you're currently towards them. Are you? Are, is your model explainable? And if not, is there ways in which you could achieve that? Because in the end of the day, regulators will work with industry to publish guidance for their sectors. And you might want that guidance to be as easily fulfillable to you as possible. What's also going to happen with this more soft law is that it will develop as a standard rather than a legislation. And complying with the standard and saying, yes, we're fully compliant according to these five principles might give you an advantage on market because your product might be more trustworthy. And I think this is something that this approach really hopes for. So there will be a more collaborative approach. And I think it will happen through conversations and dialogue. And if not, there's still this option of legislation that is on the table for the government right now. And through the monitoring of the implementation of its approach, I think the government will finally determine in the next 12 months whether it's necessary to have regulation.
0: And I guess this returns to a theme we explored a little bit on the podcast with John Edwards a few weeks back when he was talking us through the different ways in which you can coerce compliance and change within organizations. And that that particular context, he was talking about how you didn't need to always slap companies with big fines to affect change. And often he felt that was quite an inefficient way of doing so. <clears throat> and I guess, listen to what you're saying there, Teresa, the government agrees with him when it comes to AI and that they are hoping to see first before they have to go in with the hammer. They want to see what a more collaborative, voluntary approach can achieve by helping to set standards and by institutionalizing thinking about AI across different sectors. The question, though, that then follows is where I ended that last sentence, which is different sectors. If we have each sector across the economy, each regulator empowered to come up with different pieces of guidance and different approaches to how AI should be deployed and regulated and managed in their sector, are we not going to see major inconsistencies between, say, financial services and healthcare and employment and so on and so forth? Are we just not going to have a million different regulatory frameworks rather than a single uniform approach?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very valid concern and one that has been shared when the government initially published this approach to regulating AI and proposed this framework Of saying they want to have sectorally based regulation. Um, And it's partly responded to that in putting some guidance or like some announcements in the white paper. So one announcement that related to these concerns was establishing a framework that would oversee the regime and would help coordinating the harmonization and implementation of it. And this will help also and communicate with companies to navigate regulation. Then secondly, there is the Digital Regulation Corporation Forum, the DRCF, which was exactly established for the purpose to create more coherent digital regulation and hopefully prevent the patchwork approach that you mentioned. Interestingly today, the news of the day is that Kate Jones was appointed as head of the DRCF and she has been doing a lot of work on AI regulation. She has published. A paper on how human rights and AI regulation relate. So I think that's a positive input there as pointing a subject matter expert on AI specifically to the DRCF and maybe hint at the role that this might play. And then a second point on preventing the patchwork is, yes, you're absolutely right. Different regulators have different regulatory capacities. That's another point that the DRCF is trying to address by also creating dialogues between regulators to share experiences, for example, on regulating AI, but also on other policies, but also to share capacities and to build up capacities within regulators. And you're right in saying that the ICO or the FCA have far more advanced guidance on this out there already. For example, the FCA has already completed a consultation on safe and responsible adoption of AI, and it's been Previously, working with the Alan Turing Institute on publishing guidance on transparency and explainability. So, there's already quite a lot out there. The FCA might have less ground to cover than, for example, the Gas and Electricity Markets Authority that might have now the role as an AI regulator when AI pertains to, for example, smart homes. And I think in that case, the mechanisms that exist to share expertise are really of crucial importance.
0: So I get the risk that you're pointing to is a slightly different risk to the one that I started with, where I was almost implying everyone would race off at 100 miles per hour and have a million different regulatory regimes. I think what you're saying almost is that we already know where those most developed frameworks are and are likely to be. You've talked about financial services, and it usually correlates with well-resourced regulators like the Financial Financial Conduct Authority. It's probably a concern less that in areas like, as you quoted, the Gas Electricity Markets Authority, that they're going to race ahead. It's more that they might just be left behind. And as we know, regulatory capacity to deal with things that aren't top of mind, top of agenda, under a lot of political and media pressure is, is quite difficult. So we'll see how that, how that plays out in the coming weeks, coming months, and coming years. One thing to move to a very different aspect of this, Teresa, is sort of where I started at the opening of the podcast, is that the white paper is remarkably quiet about ChatGPT and generative AI, despite it being generally acknowledged that we are in the midst of a hugely transformational moment in the delivery of technology through generative AI. Indeed, the white paper came out the same week that the Italian Data Protection Authority temporarily banned ChatGPT. What is your take on this strange silence within the white paper about the moment of the day?
1: Yeah, it's a quite loud silence. Let me start in looking into the Italian case. If you look at it, the basis for which ChatGPT was tempor- temporarily banned is data protection, not necessarily specific AI regulation. But you're absolutely right in saying that it shows the concerns that are there present for generative AI in particular. Um there's there are other cases that kind of portray this this trend towards being concerned about generative AI. There's a very prominent letter by the Future of Life Institute, which people like Andrew Yang, Elon Musk, and Steve Wojniak, the co-founder of Apple, have signed that demands a six-month pause, bigger AI model development. So given that this is a rapidly changing environment, we've all experienced it in the past couple of months, I feel like regulators were feeling that this isn't quite a regulatory mature sector that we can have an answer for now. So... The government might take a wait-and-see approach. It's also really interesting to to see that Deely introduced as a new ministerial role for AI, which was appointed, which to Viscount Cameras was appointed to. And he is not only minister for AI, but also intellectual property. Now, a lot of the debates around generative AI also relate to intellectual property. What if an AI creates an image based on the work of a couple of different painters, Who does that image belong to? Who has the legal rights to it? And these questions are unanswered legally from a data perspective standpoint. And the discussions around this are yet to be had. The Intellectual Property Authority has been conducting research into this for quite some time. For example, it's been looking at streaming and how algorithms affect streaming revenues for musicians. And the thing is that this research is not complete yet. So We can't really have this big and overarching regulatory approach also applying to generative AI in particular. I think the hope right now is to see whether the current proposed framework would also apply sufficiently to generative AI and we'll see whether that will play
0: out or not. Sometimes, so I agree with all that, Teresa, but sometimes when I was reading the paper and reading the coverage, I almost felt like the government was trying to have a conversation that would have been more suitable to a year before Yes. And that and I get there's been lots of delays. We've had three prime ministers, as everyone talks about, lots of changes to Secretary of State and junior ministers. We've had a whole new department, et cetera, et cetera. We get the reasons why it's been delayed. But I think those delays have created that practical problem that, as you say, the government has not been ready to update its strategy to reflect what has happened in the interim. And that has created a number of different issues. And I get all the arguments that you've made there about why wait and see might be a wise policy choice. But I think there's a very interesting issues related to, say, governance about the interaction between how the state and public authorities see how private companies are developing and deploying applications like ChatGPT and generative AI And you'll hear that as much from people like Sam Altman at ChatGPT, as you will, from regulators in Europe. But that does seem to be a new area of regulatory policy and structure that isn't really being discussed thoroughly enough at the moment. And the white paper could have been potentially an opportunity for that. But what we've been talking about here the whole time is almost wait and see. It's not just on gender to the eye. We're going to see how these measures play out over the next year. We're going to see whether the government in a year's time maybe gives some of this a legal underpinning and passes some legislation to genuinely empower regulators in this area. But I think we all agree that change in AI policy in the UK isn't coming today and it isn't coming tomorrow. It's coming in 6, 9, 12, 18 months' time. And what we also know is that within that time period we could have a new government and we could have a new government led by the Labour Party and they could be the ones ultimately implementing this white paper. So as a way of concluding, can you just give listeners a slight sense of what, if anything, has the Labour Party been saying about the white paper and about AI policy more?
1: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because Lucy Powell has made a statement relating to the AI AI white paper that kind of mirrors what you say that will take months, years to come into effect. And that in the meantime, ChatGPT and Google's Bart challenge proposed challenges to everyday lives already. So what she has trying to do is, is create a more a, a sense of urgency and start a debate around that. But generally, I think there has been a bit more caution towards AI within the Labour Party and its applications, its impact to the stored outcomes, for example, if we look at recruitment in terms of biases, but also its potential to create joblessness, for example, if applied to automation and factories. And so generally, Labour's position is less well developed at this stage. But I think given what we're going to wait and see in the next 12 months, I think A lot of the policy will depend on what will be seen. And in that case, there's also a window of opportunity perhaps to shape that thinking on AI policy at labor. So another another criticism that Powell has been giving to the AI white paper is that she sees gaps in the existing regulatory system that are rated by the AI white paper not filling them and that is for example pr- protecting citizens privacy rights and she sees that as a trend within conservative legislation also happening in the data bill which is a little bit more re-friendly so what the labor government might what a labor government might do is Focus a little bit more on on citizen protection, while of course also taking in mind keeping in mind that regulation should be innovation focused, but with this caveat that it should serve people and the markets equally.
0: I think that's right. I think it would be very surprising that a future Labour government comes in and wants to do the exact equivalent of the EU's AI Act. I think there is a broad consensus between both parties that developing a vibrant AI economy and start-up scene and ecosystem here is important and could be a driver of economic growth and also a driver of greater public service delivery through public sector digitisation. That said, I think your instincts are correct, that in certain areas, particularly around work and particularly around discrimination, Labour will look at these issues a little bit more closely than perhaps is being done so at the moment will have a higher appreciation or at least a higher sensitivity to the potential risks that AI algorithms can present. A final point, just to note there you mentioned the data bill, so the data protection and digital information bill, which is just about to start its passage through Parliament. I guess what's worth noting in this respect is that while that doesn't really touch on AI, it's quite clear. The parliamentarians could table amendments related to AI and almost I would expect them to do so. So we could see attempts probably more in the House of Lords, I would suspect, whereby there are attempts to legislate for AI, regardless of the non-legislative approach the government has set out today. So there will be a parliamentary management process that the government will have to go in for. And we could see at the end of that certain targeted bits of legislation coming out at the end of the process. So we'll keep an eye out for that and keep listeners posted as and when that develops. So Teresa, just to say thanks very much for taking us through all of that. And thank you to everyone on the line for joining us. As always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to the AI and data protection policies that we've been talking about today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find our contact details on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thank you very much and see you next week. Bye-bye.